right. Well, hey, welcome. Welcome to training day. How many of y'all, this is your first time to ever come to training day? All right, good. Good. So about half the people. Um, my name is Nathan Wagnon, and I am, uh, I've been going to Watermark kind of off, off and on, <laughs> kind of off and on. Um, I started coming to church here in 2002 um, when I came to Dallas. I moved to Dallas to go to graduate school, and then in 2008, um, so about six years later, I, I uh, joined the Army and have spent the last five years in the U.S. Army as an infantry officer, and, uh, and then, <laughs> appreciate it, yeah, and, uh, and then um, after two, two uh, tours to Afghanistan and, and uh, some ridiculousness there, um, my wife and I decided that the operational tempo was a little bit too high for us, and then after she got pregnant with our first child, baby Nate, um, who is now six months old, um, we decided it was time for us to move uh, out of the out of the military. So, um, I um, am kind of in transition right now between the military and moving into some sort of full time vocational ministry. So, in the pre- in the meantime, I'm a resident here at Watermark and uh, serve on the equipping team. So, um, we're the equipping team is the one that kind of puts this thing on. And um, look, the I'm I'm going to talk for the next two and a half hours with a break. All right. <laughs> um, on on uh, Christian discipleship, okay. Some of you guys, uh, how many of y'all have have? Some, how many of y'all are like, man, what is Christian discipleship? And then how many of y'all are kind of, hey, I've kind of been down that road a little bit. I mean, we um, there's a there's probably a wide variety of experience when it comes to, hey, what is discipleship? Am I involved in this? Um, all, all that sort of thing. So. Um, I'm going to talk about it. Um, this has been something that has been very much a part of my life from the time that I uh, placed my faith in Jesus as an eight-year-old boy. And so um, this spring, I started, uh, actually, I started my doctorate in, with a track in, uh, in Christian discipleship. And so the, the, uh, the really difficult thing that I've had over the past couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this class is uh, to, to kind of like take this amount of information and put it in this amount of time in really succinct terms so that it's, it's easy to understand. I say that because I'm, I'm telling you, we're going to go through an inordinate amount of information this morning, okay? It's a lot. I mean, each one of these sections that I'm going to teach on could be easily be a class by itself, okay? So I'm saying that because you're going to feel like you're kind of drinking from a fire hydrant a little bit. However, I do want you to feel the freedom and the liberty to raise your hand and ask a question, okay? So if I'm going and going and going, please be brave. Hey, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> all right? And, and uh, ask that question, all right? Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I pray that, I pray that you would give me just an extreme amount of clarity, that you would give me the clarity of thought and, and uh, clarity of speech, that, that, uh, that what is said um, will be uh, from your Spirit, and that it will be received and internalized that we might go and uh, both be and make disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, when you start thinking about Christian discipleship, you have to start here, all right? What is the kingdom of God? So, <clears throat> in, in some sense, the, you know, in some sense, there's the, the kingdom of God has always been here because God, who is the king, created the world, and so he is its sovereign. As the creator, as the ruler, God is the king. Okay, so in a really basic sense, the kingdom of God is, is the dynamic reign of God as the sovereign over all creation. He made it, it's his, he's the king. Okay, and yet in another sense, 
um, there is, there's also this, this idea that like, even though God is the king over creation, um, he's not necessarily, his will is not being done by everything in his creation, right? Not everybody believes in God. Definitely not everybody follows God, okay? So there's a sense in which God is the sovereign and it's his kingdom. And yet there is, in the midst of this, the range of God's effective will, both material and immaterial. So in order to talk about the range of God's effective will, we also need to say that like, there's a reason that people, that creation doesn't necessarily follow the way God intended it for it to be. And the reason, there's a reason why we don't follow God the way that we're intended and called to follow him. All right. What is that? It's a three letter word, starts with an S, ends with an N. All right. Sin, the fall, depravity, right? I mean, when, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it was a, it was truly a, I mean, um, it was a, it was a relational rebellion against the one who created them and walked with them in the garden in the cool of the evening. Okay. And it is a cataclysmic wreck. It wrecked everything. It wrecked our relationship with God. It wrecked creation standing with God. So both the material world that we live in and also um, the, the people who live in the material world, all of it is broken and fallen. Okay. And so even in the midst of that, God is still moving to redeem his kingdom. And so in, in, in one sense, the kingdom of God is God ruling over everything. In another sense, it's, it's God, it's the range of his effective will so that when God says this is the way it is to be, that's actually the way it is, okay? And, and so um, both materially and immaterially, okay? Second, Jesus came as really the embodiment of the kingdom of God, and he made it available to us. So that we're, you know, sin comes, we're, we are separated from a relationship with God, which is the purpose why we were created. And so Jesus comes and says, hey, I, through my sacrifice, I will renew that relationship. I will make that relationship that you were created for, I will bring, bring that back together again. That's what salvation is, okay? And so Jesus made available to it, and then he's also redeeming it. In other words, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to renew this relationship, and then that is going to grow throughout really permeate all of creation until ultimately God will finish his plan and there's a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, you guys track with me so far? Thirdly, the spirit, so Jesus says, hey, I'm going to send you the counselor, the advocate whom I'll send in my name. He's going to basically empower you to live a kingdom type of life. And so the spirit is the one who empowers us as citizens of the kingdom to live within it. Okay, so Jesus is the agent. He's the one who is who is bringing the kingdom. He's the embodiment of it. He's making it available to us. The spirit is the one who is driving us within it. And then lastly, the kingdom is, is already here in some sense. And in another sense, it's not yet fully completed. All right. Here is, here's what I'm talking about. So here's the already not yet. The, the kingdom is already here. So Jesus shows up in Matthew four seventeen and says, repent because the kingdom of God has, or the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay, in some sense, Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom is already here, but me as the perfect embodiment of the kingdom is is drawing near to you in one sense physically because Jesus is literally walking up to them as the embodiment of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is drawing near to you. In another sense, like we've already covered, this, he's, he's doing so because he's making the kingdom available to us by writing a new covenant on our hearts that we would be brought back into a relationship with God. Okay, um, so in some sense, the kingdom is already here because it lives through the sacrifice of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. It lives literally inside of you. 
okay? But it's not, an, it's not immaterial only. What God is not just going to save our hearts and then the rest of it goes away. He's saving our hearts so that we can be the type of citizen that lives materially out in the physical world to bring about God's will in that realm as well, okay? So it's both material and immaterial. It's already here. And yet it's not yet fully completed, and, and, and Jesus, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, it says, Then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. Okay? So what Paul is teaching here is that, hey, the kingdom will fully come at some point, and, and that's only going to happen after Jesus has destroyed everybody else who thinks they're in charge. Okay? And so that's why out to the side of this, I put competing kingdoms because the kingdom of God is already here. He's already moving. It's already dynamic. It's already active. And yet in another sense, um, it's not yet fully completed because there's a whole bunch of other kingdoms that are, that are doing whatever they want, right? Which brings us to you and me, <laughs> right? This, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. I know it's kind of tough because it's going into the wheat there. You can't really see it. Um, but that brings us, that brings us to, to who, are, who are the competing kingdoms. What do you guys think? Do what? Okay, other religions. Good. Yeah, other belief systems. What else? Okay, yeah, the world, absolutely. Just basically a, a kind of a simple denial of, of God and his reign. I mean, that's, that's kind of exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? The Lord said, hey, this is the way I've created it. This is the way it's going to be. This is the best thing for you. It's actually the only thing that can give you life. And Adam and Eve did what? Screw you, God. I want to do it my own way. In fact, that was the temptation in, the, in Genesis, remember? Genesis 3 where, you know, uh, Satan said, hey, did God really tell you this? And then Eve saw that the fruit was good um, to eat and that, she, and that really, ultimately, that she could be like God. And so she ate it. Right? That's, that is the rebellion. That's the fundamental nature of our sin. And so, um, and, and so in the midst of God's effective reign, there are these pockets of rebellion that are, that where God's effective will is not done because people in their own rebellion against God, want to do things their own way. And that manifests itself in the world, in our, in our culture, in world powers, in other belief systems, and all sorts of things, okay? You guys tracking with me? Okay. So it's already here, but it's not yet fulfilled. And this is, look, guys, I could probably say this and we'd be done, all right? But this is, this is the fundamental truth of Christianity, and it is, um, it is truly the purpose and the reason why Jesus came to, re- to redeem the world and to bring us back into a relationship with God. God wants you to be a citizen in his kingdom so that you obey his effective rule in your life so that you can participate and be an active participant in the mission of God, and that is to redeem all mankind. Okay? So, look, Saying a prayer and, and uh, kind of easy believism, like, hey, I'll just believe that God died for my sin. That, is that Christianity? Yes, Jesus died for your sin. But man, that is only like one small part of the big picture of what God is doing as he moves and, and is redeeming the world to bring about the kingdom of God. 
Okay, so from the outset, and this is the reason I want to cover this at the beginning, the baseline foundation for Christian discipleship is the truth that God is inviting you to participate with him in his mission, right? That is the Christian life. It's not a once over, I got my ticket to heaven, now I'm, now I'm done, okay? Which brings us really to the definition of what is Christian discipleship. I mean, if, if, we're, if we're looking at Okay, how, how are we involved in all of this? I mean, what, we understand that what God is doing around us, but then um, how are we involved in it? So as with most things, when you define things, it's, I think it's, it is really helpful to, uh, to start with what Christian discipleship is not, okay? So Christian discipleship is not simply the transfer of knowledge, okay? How many of you guys have ever gone to like a discipleship group? Raise your hand. Anybody ever said, hey, come to our discipleship group, and you guys went to it? Tell me, what, what, uh, what did that involve? When you went to a discipleship group, what did you do? Crickets. All right, listen to some teachings. What else? We studied a book together. Okay, yeah, you studied a book. I mean, I, like anybody else want to jump in on that? Because for most people, probably what you did in, the, in, a, in your discipleship group is transfer knowledge, right? You just learned stuff. And so discipleship as, as learning, um, that is an aspect of discipleship for sure, but that, but that sells the rest of it really short. And so it's, it's definitely not simply the transfer of knowledge. Is it the transfer of knowledge? Yes, to an extent, but it's not just that, okay? Secondly, it's not only for the really committed. How many of y'all have ever heard this before? Well, you kind of become a Christian, but man, those people that really take discipleship seriously, those are like the special forces of Christianity. <laughs> you know, I mean, those people are like the typically, I mean, what our culture would look at those people and say, man, they're really hyper spiritual. They're really like they're kind of weird. There's kind of a weird element because it's, it's just odd. And most people will come to church. Um, they'll do their religious obligation for the week and then basically um, kind of say, hey, Lord, yeah, I'm still in your kingdom, but, I'm, but I still want to do, I still want to rule my kingdom and be in your kingdom at the same time, all right? That's kind of, and, and, and it's kind of like, how, do, how does that make any sense, all right? So Christ, Christian discipleship is not only for the really committed. Thirdly, Christian discipleship is not a specific program or a method. So a lot of people are like, hey, come sign up for my discipleship group, my like 18-month program that I'll take you through. And man, at the end of that, bam, you're a disciple, okay? And that's, all of these things are, um, uh, some of these things are, are aspects of discipleship, but it is not the definition of discipleship. So what is Christian discipleship? Christian discipleship is fundamentally relational. John chapter 17, verse 3. Anybody know that off the top of their head? Jesus, right before he goes to the cross. Jesus says, praying to his father, and he says, he says, Father, now this is eternal life. Right? So it's kind of like, hey, Webster's out there. You can flip to Webster and find a definition. So Jesus is giving you the definition of eternal life. And he says, now this is eternal life, that they, meaning us, may know you, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what's eternal life? to know God. It's really simple, right? God created us in his kingdom to, to, um, to be in fellowship with him, to be in, in a relationship with him. We broke that, 
right? His kingdom, he's about redeeming his kingdom and, and spreading his kingdom in, until it permeates the entire world and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And he's also in the midst of that, he's bringing us back into a relationship with God the Father, right? So eternal life is not necessarily a life that, hey, I die and then it's, and it's, and it has this just uh, uh, a time sense to it or a duration. It's also a quality kind of life that you have now, here and now, because if you're a believer, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then through the sacrifice of Jesus, you have been reunited with God the Father in an intimate, vibrant, active relationship. Right? That is eternal life, to know God. And so when, when we're talking about discipleship, then the very, I mean, the very foundation of Christian discipleship is our relationship with God. So this morning, the, the rest of the time that we're together, we are going to be talking about elements of that relationship. Because that's what discipleship is. It, it fundamentally is a relationship with God through Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Second, it's a call to follow Jesus in the kingdom life and to journey with him. Okay? So Jesus says in, in, uh, in, in well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So this call for Jesus in, to, to follow Jesus in the kingdom and a life to journey with him, what, what, what does that life look like? So Jesus is saying, hey, come follow me. And, and we're like, okay, I'll follow you, but where are we going? Like, what does this life look like? What does, the, what does the life of a disciple look like? Well, there's different elements of it. One, obviously, if you're going to be in the kingdom and under God's rule, you have to live like you're under the king's rule, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty basic stuff. If, you know, if you're living in a kingdom and the king has his power over you and you rebel against him, then and in some sense, you're not living in his kingdom anymore because you're not doing what the king says, Okay, so, I mean, a really basic level, I mean, life with Jesus is to live under the king's rule. In Matthew 16, 24 to 26, anybody got this one off the top of their head? Or want to turn to it and read it? Matthew 16, 24 to 26, he's in Caesarea Philippi, he's about to go to Jerusalem and die on a cross, and he tells us, he's with his disciples, and he, um, this is where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and then immediately after that, Jesus says what? Real loud, somebody. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and leave their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world to forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Bam. All right. Jesus is saying, look, in order for my kingdom to come, which he teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, right? Your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And then again, in, in, uh, in, uh, actually later on, just right after this uh, passage, he gives, the keys to, uh, he gives the keys of the kingdom to his disciples, and he says, hey, um, whatever you will have bound on earth will have already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying is like, hey, um, what I'm doing and, and the power that I'm giving you is, is for you to transfer what is already a, a basic reality in the heavens. I'm telling you that needs to come to the earth. Okay? And the way that that happens is, the means by which that happens is, you deny yourself. Because you yourself are a competing kingdom. You're the king of your own life, 
right? And Jesus is saying, if you want to participate in my kingdom, you need to get off the throne of your own life. If anyone wants to come after me, participate in my kingdom, participate in what I'm doing in the world, let him deny himself, take up his cross, right? The cross in that, in that, in that culture, just in case, uh, and this, most of you may know this, but the cross in that culture is not something that people like wore around their neck as a piece of jewelry, right? Um, the cross in that culture was something that they, you climbed on and died, right? So take up your cross, all right? Live a self-death kind of life and follow me, okay? The reason that, I mean, just to reiterate, the, the reason that we have to die is because um, Jesus will not accept any kind of kingship from anyone else but himself because he's the only one qualified to rule. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He is the, he is the king, okay? So life in the kingdom looks like living under the king's rule. Participating in the king's mission, all right? Matthew 28, 19 um, says, therefore, Jesus in verse 18 says, now all authority has been given to me, right? He's saying, he's claiming his right to rule. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, Right? So, so Jesus is, after he's been with his disciples for three-ish years in his public ministry, he is at the end of his ministry inviting his disciples to continue what he has already started. And that is the expansion of the kingdom of God through the hearts of men. Right? Um, this is a, this is a, it really is an epic story. It is the story of our lives because it's what God created us for and it's what God is doing and it is, and it is how God is inviting us to participate with him. And that, and that brings up this last, this last point that we'll, we'll talk about. Um, transfer, transformation is normative. For somebody to say, I, I follow Christ, and yet my life has never changed in any way, shape, or form, you know what my answer to them is? You need to work out your salvation, <laughs> right, with fear and trembling. Because if you live under the rule of the king and you participate with him in his mission, your life will fundamentally change. And that's, that's because Jesus is, is, is working in your life at the very core level of who you are, and that in which we're going to unpack over the next two hours. And that is to say, I want your heart. I want, I want you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And that self-denial and that self-death kind of death is is us saying, okay, Lord, you are the king, and because you're the king, um, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to live my life as you dictate it and not as I do. Okay? So, look, for somebody to actually be transformed from the inside out, that's not the exception. That is the rule. Okay? I mean, in, in American, especially in American Western evangelical Christianity, I mean, we, we have this pop culture Christianity that, that just accepts that you walk an aisle and pray a prayer and then just do whatever you want. That is not Christianity. That's, they may be playing the same game, but they're playing on a different field. It's not even in the same ballpark. They're not even in left field. They're, over, they're like on the other side, Okay. This is, you know, we just need to understand that like, this is that for God to actually move in your heart and change you fundamentally at a core heart level, that's what God does. And so if that's not happening in your life, then the basic question needs to be, do I, do I know God? Okay, now 
We're going to unpack you know, exactly what that looks like and what exactly transformation is. is. Don't hear me say that transformation all of a sudden means that you're an angel and you start levitating and floating around like you're, you know, like you're a god, right? This is a really messy process. But as, you, as you'll see, this is this normative, all right? And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed into the likeness of, of the Son, okay? So what is the definition of Christian discipleship? It's living in union with Christ. Okay, again, bam, relationship. Growing in conformity to his image, transformation. As the Spirit transforms the disciple from the inside out, it is the Spirit-driven process of, gro- of growth from spiritual birth, which is conversion, to maturity that ends in the glorification of the one that God has purposed to save. That is Christian discipleship, okay? You want to see a really simple definition? Christian discipleship is the Christian life which follows to say, who is a disciple? Who's a disciple? Yeah, man, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple, period. That's it. Being a disciple is not something you like, you know, progress in in the Christian life and then you become a disciple. Uh, A disciple is who you are. If you follow Christ, then you are a disciple. The question becomes, are you a good one or a bad one? Okay, and we'll, we're definitely, we'll, we'll unpack that as well, all right? <laughs> all right, so the result of, look, the result of Christian discipleship is transformation into the image of Christ, all right? Because, look, just the macro picture, like I started off with, God is about redeeming the world. In order to redeem the world, God is all about redeeming your heart, okay? And if God is redeeming your heart, then he is, what he's doing in, your, in you at a heart level is making you look like his son, so that he has literally a bunch of little Christs running around in his kingdom, accomplishing both living in communion with him and accomplishing what he is doing in the world. Um, and that is the expansion of the kingdom of God until um, there comes a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? Well, that brings up a really uh, interesting question as well, and that is what keeps us from transformation, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, it, it, look, if I stopped there, then we would all walk out of here and be like, well, that's kind of depressing. Why would we be depressed? Because we know how we live. We know what's in, deep, in our deep, dark parts of our closet, right? We know that there are areas of our heart that have not been transformed by the Holy Spirit, right? And so in some sense, and y'all can write this down because I didn't put it on a slide, but this is a great quote. I use it all the time. Discipleship, Christian discipleship, is self-implicating. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by Christian discipleship is self-implicating? As we follow Jesus, we're called to a standard, which is what? Jesus says, be what? Be holy, because I'm holy. Right? And yet, when we look at that, what do we realize immediately? I'm not holy. <laughs> like, this is a serious problem. I mean, if, if the goal, if the end state of Christian discipleship is to know God and be transformed into the image of his son, man, I got a long way to go. Right? And so, man, this is, the, um, this is what we really have to get to, um, uh, and this is why we're going to camp out here for, for a little bit. And that's, I'm going to call that realization that God has called us to a perfect standard and yet we realize how we live. I'm going to call that the sanctification gap. Okay? Does anybody know what sanctification is? Yeah, totally. All right? So, 
So real quick, and I, this is for free, all right? I don't, you don't have to pay extra for this, but, uh, and, sorry. Sorry about that. I'll, uh, I'll go back and edit that out. <laughs> um, so this is for free. <clears throat> and and uh, if you wanted to take the eternity to eternity class, I'll just give you the class in like two minutes and we'll be done. Um, so the salvation is three parts, okay? One, you are, um, you are called by the Holy Spirit to be in, uh, to be in a reconciled into a relationship with God and that, and that uh, by grace through faith you are made absolutely holy. That is an instantaneous um, action by God to look at you and say you are not guilty anymore, okay? That's called um, conversion or the, the legal term for it, or the theological term for it is called justification, okay? You move from guilty and dead to not guilty and reunited back to God who is life. That is justification. Then you have the third aspect of it is glorification. And that is when God says, it is done. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of, of, of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. See Revelation eleven fifteen. Awesome. My favorite verse in the Bible, one of them, okay? And, and because it speaks to the culmination of the kingdom of God, that Jesus comes to rule. And, and, and when that happens, then we who are in Christ will be ushered into his presence in uninhibited relational access to him. That is called glorification. That happens, one, when you die, or two, when Jesus comes back and says, come on, okay? That's called glorification. All of the in-between stuff, of God saying, hey, now that you're, you're absolutely not guilty and alive, and yet you're going to be glorified in the future, now I've got to take you who are still behaviorally broken and sin and depravity, and I have to bring into conformity, I have to bring your behavior into conformity with who I've declared you to be. Okay? It's kind of like a king looking at his son and saying, hey, son, um, you're the prince. So, I mean, don't go do stuff that's not princely, because that's not who you are. Right? And I think this is a good way that we should look at sin is to say, hey, we don't, we, we don't sin because that's not who we are. We're sons of God. Okay? That's the eternity from eternity class. And so sanctification is that process of God bringing your behavior into conformity with who he has already declared you to be. Okay? So the sanctification gap. Um, what is it? <clears throat> the sanctification gap is the gap between our creedal theology and our functional theology, all right? That's basically saying, hey, this is the way I think I should live in, under God's kingdom based on scripture, based on, you know, uh, uh, based on tradition, based on the, the movement of the Holy Spirit in my life. This is the call. This is the way I should live, okay? And then our functional theology is what? That's how you actually live, Right? Who wants to say that their functional theology matches up step in step with their creedal theology? Anybody want to be brave and raise their hand? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, none of us do. None of us, our functional theology is, is to say, and, and just to bring it down into, into common kind of everyday language, I mean, uh, functional, the difference between creedal and functional theology is for you to say, um, God is love. God loves me. But... You wake up in the morning and you don't, you don't feel loved, right? You don't feel loved by God. And you sin and there's guilt and shame. And you're, you know, I know, man, God, I know that you say you love me and you forgive me, but oh, I don't feel like it. This is how I live my life down here, right? Um, this is not some abstract 
good idea, right? This is, this is nuts and bolts, like tires on the road kind of stuff in your life. And so, because a lot of us, even though we say God is love, we live like he's not. We live like we have to please him all the time because he's out to get us or something like that. Okay? I mean, that's just one example of the sanctification gap. Um, it's, it's not just a belief system. It's a heart level. What do I truly believe? Because frankly, what you truly believe is how you live. Um, that's, man, you want to find out somebody's functional theology, get out their calendar, get out their checkbook, get out how they spend their leisure time, get out you, that there. You're going to see where their heart is in simple terms. It is the areas of our lives where we do not live what we believe. Okay. That's the sanctification gap. So what are some of the response tendencies to sin in our lives? Um, one of them is pretense. This is huge. What does pretense mean? Or what do, we, what do I mean by pretense? What do you think? You just pretend like you're better than you really are. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, it, it's like I, hey, I know, that, I, I know that I'm supposed to live like this, but I don't really live like that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover my sin. I'm going to hide from God, and I'm just going to pretend like it's not there. Right? I'm gonna, when I go out in public, I'm just going to be like, hey, um, hey, I've, you know, oh yeah, you know, my time with the Lord is rich. It's really rich, you know, and you realize that like you just rolled out of bed and you haven't spent time with the Lord in a long time, you know, that's pretense. You're covering it. You're hiding from it. You're, you're just pretending like that it's, it, the sanctification gap is not there. Man, quit that. <laughs> All right. I mean, like I, I, uh, and it, I realize that that's more difficult than, I, than just saying to quit it. Um, and we're going to unpack that as we go as well. But that's definitely a huge one. All right, another one is to get into programmatic and personal solutions, self-help, right? Man, in order for me to kind of bridge the sanctification gap, I'm just going to try hard. I'm going to get into a, I'm going to get into a, a discipleship group. I'm going to get into a program that's going to allow me to, man, I'm just going to, um, that's going to really bridge that sanctification gap. And I'm really going to become the type of person that God wants me to be. And so you spend all your time going in and out of small groups, in and out of discipleship groups, in and out of equipping stuff, thinking that like, hey, um, man, me trying hard and me being kind of hyperactive about this is really going to fix this problem for me. Right, and so in a lot of, in a, for a lot of people, this is, you know, the, the pretense deal may not be an issue for a lot of people. A lot of people may just be like, no, I admit that the sanctification gap is there. I'm just trying really hard to do away with it. Okay, this is all also a really common response. Thirdly, and and going on the programmatic and personal solutions, moral formation, because we think that God is after morality, right? We think that like the highest form of our, of our discipleship to Jesus is just for us to be moral people, for us to kind of help the people in, in need, for us to give a little bit, for us to not cheat on our husbands or wives, or for us to not lie, or for us to... It's all behavioral driven, right? And that's what we think. And so, I mean, we will attempt to find a moral standard and go after that with all our might. We're white-knuckling it, right? We're trying really hard. And yet at the same time, what's happening? The sanctification gap is still as wide as it's ever been, right? Because you fail and then you get back up and you fail and you get back up and, there's, and, and it's just this teetering um, chaos in, in your life. And, and even though you're trying really hard to, to gain moral formation, you're actually not forming anything. Fourthly, ministry activism. Woo! Come on, watermark, right? 
mean, how much stuff does Watermark do? A ridiculous amount is the answer, okay? And frankly, a lot of people around Watermark are saying, man, sanctification gap. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get into a program and then I'm going to serve, serve, serve. I'm going to totally be active in, in ministry and I'm going to just go out and do things for people. And man, the Lord's going to form me through that. No, he's not. All right. He's not. That's not what God does. And so for a lot of people, ministry activism is a cover for their own lack of spiritual transformation in their lives. You know how many pastors and ministers are out there? I mean, time after time after time who have spent an inordinate amount of time studying and an inordinate amount of time um, doing ministry and they burn out. Why? Because they think that their activity in ministry equals spiritual transformation in their lives. No, it doesn't. Okay? Fifthly, brokenness compounded, right? A lot of people, and look, man, a lot of people kind of go in this, they kind of go in this order. They'll, they'll kind of cover and hide it, and then they'll kind of, you know, kind of using the CR language, they'll step out of denial into the grace of God, and then they'll, they'll get into a program, and they'll work on personal solutions, and then they'll try to be moral, and then they'll, they'll, they'll get active in ministry, and then, and then they realize, after they've been spinning their wheels and spinning their wheels, that it's like, I can't do this. And so they revert to, not only do they revert, but they revert back, and it becomes compounded, the amount of brokenness that's in their lives. Right? Because they real, they're spinning their wheels and they're like, I'm not really changing. Jesus said for that, that we would be conformed and be transformed into the image of his son, but I don't, but that I don't re, in, in my functional theology does not believe that because I don't see it in my life. And so because of that, um, the, the brokenness is compounded in their life. They become disillusioned and then there's despair. Right? People are just like, I mean, a, a lot of people will just toss it. They'll be like, I'm done. Or they'll either toss it or, or they'll stay at like three and four. They'll stay at number three and four and just kind of continue to basically use moral formation as an anesthetic to deaden the pain of their empty life. And what I'm telling you this morning is that when Jesus came and offered you the kingdom, he was not joking with you. The reality of spiritual transformation is real. It is possible. In fact, it's supposed to be functionally normative. Okay, so these are a lot of the, you know, active response tendencies that people give. So what is sin? What is that thing that we're kind of constantly dealing with? Sin is not merely or even primarily a behavioral problem. It is fundamentally a relational rebellion. Okay, remember we talked in the beginning, relationship with God, Jesus brings back to a relationship with God, and yet we have rebelled. We are traitors. We've committed treason against God, right? It's a relational rebellion. And consequently, it's an internal disordering and subsequently a behavioral outworking that further disrupts the human personality and deeply habituates the entire process. Okay, and this is about uh, Steve Porter, which by the way, Steve, how you doing, man? Because he's going to be listening to this. He's... Uh, He's the guy that, that's leading my, disciple, the, my doctoral cohort. So I'm sending him this recording um, for part of my, uh, um, for part of my uh, fulfillment, class fulfillment. So what's up, Steve? <coughs> um, 
So what, what Steve is saying is he's saying, look, this is, not even a behavior, this is not about behavior. This is about a relationship and the fact that you've rebelled. And, and that relational rebellion that started in the garden and is very active in our lives today, the consequence of that is that you are on the inside totally disordered. And because of that disordering, you have um, that, that behavioral outworking is a manifestation of the disordering that's happened in your heart. And, and all of that is just this crazy cycle of sin in our lives. Okay? Um, a, another way to say this. Sin is more than behavior. It's more than desire. Sin is the deep caverns of the heart where our core nature seeks to be God instead of loving God. Okay? And I'll tell you, for, for most people, they, for, well, I can't say that. For a lot of people, for a lot of people, they never really begin to deal with their own sin at a heart level. They never internalize the fact that they actually are totally depraved. And because of that, they get stuck in these cycles of response tendencies to sin because they're trying to cover it up. They're trying to say, I know it's there, but I don't want to address it because that's going to be really painful for me, so I'm just going to continue to cover it up. I'm going to continue to hide from it. Guess what Adam and Eve did in the garden? They sinned against God, and they cut fig leaves, and they what? They covered themselves. And then what they do? They hid from God. And we've been doing it ever since. Right? This is the number one thing that keeps us from our discipleship to Jesus is that most people are just not honest with themselves about their own sin. And frankly, guys, until we get honest about our sin, we will not progress in our discipleship to Jesus. This is not, it's impossible, right? We, we, we say that God sits on the throne of our lives and yet kind of that whole, you know, the Oz that's behind the curtain is us, right? It's, it's all a facade, Excuse me. All right, let's turn to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. <laughs> Anybody really encouraged so far? <laughs> it's awesome. Hey, I promise it gets better, okay? <laughs> you guys are like, man, it's depressing, you know? <clears throat> well, yeah, it is, and it's depressing. But in order to progress in discipleship to Jesus, you've got to deal with it. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Somebody read that for us real loud. Okay. So what are the dimensions of sin that Paul outlines? Um, what are the dimensions really of brokenness that we see around us that Paul outlines in Ephesians? Here's a hint. They're on the screen. <clears throat> right? The world is the first one he mentions, right, in Ephesians 2, where he says, hey, um, you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And so there is sin is, uh, because of, of the fall of Adam and Eve, there is a brokenness in the world. There is, there is a sense of... There's a sense of, man, I, um, uh, we live in a fallen world and, and, uh, and that th- there is definitely sin influenced by the world um, in, in our lives and that the enemy, right, the second aspect of what uh, the dimensions of sin, 
that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 is that the enemy takes the influence of the world that is also fallen and he tempts us um, to continue to sit on the throne of our lives, right? Which basically means we just do whatever we want, right? That is the, our desire. Look, our desire, like I already said, our desire to be the king is so deeply, deeply ingrained in us that it doesn't even take the enemy much effort, right, to tempt us to want to rule our own lives because that's what we want to do anyway. And so, um, the, and then, frankly, the, the, uh, the last dimension of sin talked about there is not only the world and Satan, but also our own flesh. And that's what I'm talking about, like our, our own depravity, the, the fact that we have fallen, that we have rebelled, relationally rebelled against God. Um, and that fallenness, that depravity is not something that, um, that is an outworking in, in our behavior and our lives. It is something that we are. Okay? Look, guys, if, if you're ever like, oh, the devil made me do it, right? Kind of pop culture, you know, cliche that, that goes on there. The devil made me do it. Or, or man, I've really been getting attacked, you know? I, I mean, it, that on, on some level, that's true. But to accurately thinking, to think about it, we live in a fallen world. And a fallen angel who has an enormous amount of, you know, um, influence in this world because he's the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of this world, right? Um, is, is, is tempting us to do something that we already want to do, right? So the, can you see how this would become this really vicious sin cycle? Because the world that's fallen is being driven by an angel that's fallen who's tempting us to do something that we already want to do at a really deep core level, right? That's how broken and fallen this world is. And yet in the midst of that, the king, right? Um, the king is moving. And he's moving, uh, to use C.S. Lewis's you know, an analogy of a lion, right? Aslan is on the move. He is working to redeem it. And he's working to redeem it, not through uh, affecting our behavior to say, oh, we'll just try harder to do the right thing, the right thing, whatever that is, right? Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to change you um, at a core level. So sin is that deep cavern of the heart where you want to be God, and so the enemy is tempting you to do something you already want to do. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, guys, if you want to see where the Holy Spirit works in your life, don't look for this, these crazy outpourings of the Holy Spirit through, you know, um, through um, spiritual excitement, right? Look for the Holy Spirit in the deep cavern of your heart where you still want to be God, because I guarantee you that's where he's working. Okay? That's where the Holy Spirit is working in your life is in that deep cavern of your heart where you still want to be God. That's where the Holy Spirit is working. <clears throat> How does this play itself out? Man, brokenness plays itself out in relationships, right? Romans 8, 6 to 8, or uh, 5 to 8. Somebody want to turn to that? <clears throat> Man, the lighting up here is pretty horrible, so I'm having trouble seeing. Those who live according to the sinful nature have the mind set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful man is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Okay? I mean, Paul, Paul's saying, well, <laughs> let, me re- let me flip that. I'm saying what Paul's saying. All right, I was going to say, Paul's saying exactly what I'm saying. You know, that's pretty arrogant. <clears throat> um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying what Paul is spelling out in Romans 8, right? There's this relational broken aspect where we're rebelling against, where we are rebelling against God. It also manifests itself internally. Galatians 5, 16 to 18. And then Galatians uh, 5, 19 and 21. So if somebody wants to turn to Galatians 5 and help me out, I'd appreciate it. So 16 to 18 says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, so there's this, not only is it a, re- a relational rebellion where our mindset on the flesh is death and rebellion against God, but it's also a, an internal struggle that we see here that says um, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. So there's this internal war going on. There's this relational rebellion. There's an internal war. And then thirdly, there's a behavioral aspect of it as well, which is verse 19 to 21. Anybody got that? Bam, done. All right? So what we see here is, is really a movement that begins with a relational rebellion against God, and that consequently becomes an internal struggle in our lives because even though we are, we, we are disciples of Jesus and have by grace through faith placed our uh, faith in Christ to save us, um, even though we've done these things, um, there still remains this internal struggle because where the Holy Spirit is, he is warring, the Holy Spirit is warring against our sinful nature, it's an internal struggle, right? So that Paul says in Galatians 5, so you do not do what you want, right? I mean, there's the, the, the call is like, man, I want to be like Christ, but I don't act like it, right? There's this, in, there's this deep-seated internal struggle there, and that ends up playing itself out behaviorally in, through that list that she just read, okay? So if we're going to say, where is sin? Where would you guys say sin is? Okay? In, in what sense? Everywhere. Was it you that said that? Okay. In what sense? Everywhere. Temptations everywhere. Okay. Yeah. So the, the dimensions of sin, the world, Satan, our, our, uh, our flesh as well. All right? Where else would you say that sin is? Okay? And at, ultimately, that's the ultimate answer, is it's in your heart. Okay? And it, as, we're, as we defined it earlier, sin is not so much... Behavior, it's not even fundamentally behavior. Sin is, sin is a relational rebellion. It's the fact that you've been reconciled to God through, by grace through faith and the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. And you have said, hey, um, I'm praying that your kingdom will come and your will be done in my life as it is in heaven, but I don't really mean it. In my heart, I don't really mean it. How many of y'all have, how many of y'all have ever said something like, you know, I mean, just, you know, recently, I mean, my wife, my wife was, uh, my wife was asking me to do something, and and uh, you know, I kind of, gr- I kind of just gritted my teeth and did it, right? But she knew, and I knew, that's not what I wanted to do, right? In my heart of hearts, I wanted to be like, screw you, do it yourself, you know? I mean, that's what I wanted to say, 
right? And you guys laugh because you're like, whoa, that's kind of like, dang, man, you got anger issues. Yes, I do. And so do you. That's the issue, is that we, we've glossed over sin and made it like, oh, well, I, I don't want to really be honest about my sin because then somebody may be like, whoa, you have issues. Do, do you see what I'm saying? In your heart of hearts, I mean, I like, um, and uh, again, um, just for me to be vulnerable, I do have anger issues, okay? Um, uh, I, um, I am, through the power of the Holy Spirit, am, am working to resolve those. But um, some of it is, uh, well, let me say this, at, at a core level, it is who I am on the inside. On, on another level, there's external stuff like, uh, you know, our, our friend from, from uh, University of Texas um, uh, clapped earlier. Um, some of it has, has been accentuated because of my experiences in combat, okay? Um, there, there's some crazy stuff um, that goes on there. And, and you become accustomed to reacting, to doing things aggressively, because frankly, you have to. All right, to stay alive, and so and so there, there's uh, I'm working through that. That's that's something that uh, people know about in my life. My wife helps me with that. My accountability partners help me with that. I am consistently taking that to the Lord, but I I do I, I struggle with anger, and I'm not going to try to hide it because if I try to hide it, if I try to cover it, then I just stay in this cyclical cycle of rebellion, and and I and I never change, right? And so my overarching like. Oh man, if I could, I would. <clears throat> All right, is to is to just kind of as effectively as I can is to communicate to you. Um, be honest about your sin. Don't try to cover it and hide it. Don't even try to like accentuate it. Like, oh yeah, I know that was wrong, but or try to compare yourself to somebody else. Well, at least I'm not that bad. Be honest. Own it. That's who you are at a fundamental level. And until we come to grips with that, we will never be transformed to the image of Christ. We'll just continue to be, try to be moral people, okay? Look, our behavioral sin is birthed out of our desire to fill ourselves apart from God. And our desire to fill ourselves apart from God is birthed out of the fact that we would rather be God than trust him. That's sin. If you want to look at sin, look... That top one, that's what sin is. Everything else is a result of sin. So don't, look guys, don't deal with sin at the bottom level because that's not where it is. Don't even try to deal, don't, don't even try to deal with like, oh, I, I want to, uh, no, do the hard work of self-evaluation, do the hard work of taking this to the Holy Spirit and having him probe deeply into, your, into the self so that you can move beyond and actually be honest about your sin so that there can actually um, be transformation. There are two fundamental truths that you need to understand about who you are in relation to God and keeping his law. One, you cannot keep the law of God. It is impossible. So quit trying. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's like you, you can't keep the law of God, so why are we trying to keep it? All right, now I'll unpack that a little bit because you're kind of like, well, do we, do, do we not do anything at all? Um, no, that's not the case, but it's, it's nuanced, okay? All right, here's the second fundamental truth, and it goes, a, it goes much deeper, and this is what I'm trying to communicate to you as effectively as I can. Not only do you, can you not keep the law of God, you don't even want to. You don't even want to keep the law of God. What do you want to do? You want to be God. 
That's what flesh, that's what depravity, that's what fallenness is. You want to be God. I want to be God. And that plays itself out through our lives on a daily basis, right? So here's a practical exercise I'd love for you guys to do. Um, and you, not now, but when you leave here, okay? Here's a practical exercise. Um, go quiet yourself, turn everything off, all right? Get, get away, um, still your soul, right? And then submit to the Holy Spirit. And just ask the Lord this simple question. Why do I sin? Okay? I mean, because a lot of times we think of sin as just a behavior, right? Well, oh man, I, you know, I sin. I mean, um, you know, for guys, it may be lust. For women, it may be body image. For, I mean, you, you dude, pick your poison, all right? Anger, like I talked about. Ask the Lord the simple question, why do I sin? All right? And then don't, and here's, here's what I want you to do, because, um, and here's the little uh, asterisk. Allow the spirit to probe deeply beyond behaviors to core issues that keep you from him. So here's, here's a great way to think about this exercise. So when I do this, I say, why do I sin? And then underneath that, I'll, I'll, I'll basically, my answer is the next question. So why do I sin? Well, because I want to. That's the honest answer, right? It's not like somebody, it's not like you sin and somebody's like, oh man, I made you sin. I, the whole time I was making you sin, you were kicking and screaming because you didn't want to go. No, you sin because you want to sin, right? So that's the answer. I mean, why do I sin? Because I want to. And then that answer becomes the next question. Why do I want to sin? And then that, the, however you answer that, the, um, through the power of the Spirit, however you answer that, that becomes the next question. Does that make sense? All right, you guys get this practical exercise? I highly encourage you to do this, okay? Because the Holy Spirit is going to kind of peel back the onion, and you're going to be like, oh... Now I see what God is trying to form in me, right? Okay, pausing really quickly. We, we got about, um, I'm actually right on schedule, which is amazing. Um, <clears throat> we've got about um, 25 more minutes before we're going to take a break, a 10-minute break. So uh, pausing really quickly, um, and I, I definitely have more stuff to cover, so it's not like we're going to sit here for 25 minutes. Um, do you all have any questions about what I've covered so far? Comments, anything like that? Now's the time. There's two, four, six, eight. There's about 25 people in here. Nobody has a question. I mean, y'all have been like, y'all have been like, man, I already knew all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, what's up? Um, so, what, when, when you talk about response tendencies, and maybe this is a dumb question, but uh, like, my thought process around that is saying, okay, how do I know if I'm in a response tendency yep. to my sin? Yep. And then when you say, when like, because uh, I've heard it before, like my heart, uh, understanding your heart, mm. my feelings can be deceitful. Totally. And so um, believing it in, in my heart, uh, I, uh, I came to Christ about a year ago. And yep. So to me, like those things are kind of ambiguous. Yep. Put some meat on that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a great question because um, in a lot of ways, um, 
Oh yeah, yeah. So basically, he's asking, um, "How do I know? How do I know that I'm in a response tendency to sin? Because you know, I, can I trust my heart? Can I trust my feelings? I mean, um, can I trust? And and you know what the answer is? The answer is no. You can't trust yourself. I mean, um, that as and that's why we're going to unpack this for the rest of the time. That's why the agent for change in your life and your personal discipleship to Jesus is not you or your feelings. It is the person of the Holy Spirit. All right. And then that, then that becomes, well, what does it look like to walk in the spirit? Like Galatians five says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay. Well then what does it, what does it mean to walk in the spirit? And so what I would tell you real practically, and we'll, we will unpack this a little more as we go is um, one, um, you need to get good at um, through scripture and, and through um, just basically, um, <sighs> discipline is a, is a harsh word because a lot, it brings a lot of connotation that people have to the table um, about it, their own experience with that word. But, um, but it brings the, the habitual practicing of stilling yourself, of quieting, of slowing, and of listening to the Holy Spirit, right? So there's a book back there on the table by Dallas Willard um, called Hearing God, Developing a conversational relationship with God, and I man, read that book, man. I mean, it, there there is definitely aspects of of your own personal um, communion with God. That's a big part of it. Um, there is aspects of community where you get around people who are you know trusted, who who are like, man, I you know I'd love for I'd love to process that stuff with you, right? The, I mean, accountability, and we are we are designed not only to live in relationship, um, like you know, with God, but also with one another. That's a, f- that, I mean, on a fundamental level, that's what we're created to do. And so, doing that on a habitual basis is a is a good idea as well. Okay, um, so I'll, yeah, I'm right on time. Bam, good. <clears throat> that was my second alarm. Um, I, I seriously, I prayed all night that I would be on time. So thank you, Lord. <clears throat> Does that help a little bit? Okay. Anybody else before we move on? What was the Romans verse? A couple of slides over. Oh, under the two fundamental truths. Truths, sorry. There we go. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what Paul is, and the reason I put Psalm 14 up there is that Paul in Romans 3 is quoting Psalm 14, right? So I just put them both up there. Psalm 14, 2 to 3, and Romans 3, 10 to 18. It basically is that passage where Paul says, hey, the Lord, or Psalm says, the Lord looked down from heaven to see who was following after them, and there was nobody, <laughs> right? We have all turned away. And so it's that whole aspect of, hey, you, you cannot follow the, God, the law of God. Um, you don't even want to. You have turned your own way, okay? Um, yeah, Romans 10, 3 to, uh, t- Romans 3, 10 to 18. Okay, so the next thing I want to cover is something in the, you know, hey, bear with me, all right? But this is called Aristotelian Virtue Formation, all right? Uh, Yeah, y'all are going to be like, man, I went to equipping, or I went to training day, and I learned Aristotelian Virtue Formation, so I could go around and sound smart, right? Um, Yeah. Um, but that's what it's called. So um, basically, Aristotle, back in the day, um, you know, Aristotle's some, you know, uh, 400 years before Christ. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, because Aristotle was, um, uh, Philip of Macedon had Aristotle tutor his son, um, Alexander, right? Alexander the Great. So 
Um, Aristotle's about 400 years before Christ, and he came up with this, this uh, idea of virtue formation. How do you become a virtuous person? In other words, that dealing with the sanctification gap, how, if your goal is virtue, how do you get there? And that's, that's what um, Aristotle was dealing with, okay? So in, in Aristotle's view, the ultimate goal is for a human being to flourish, okay? So that was his goal. Um, his cardinal virtues were courage, justice, prudence, temperance, and then his process, and this is the threefold Aristotelian virtue formation process, um, pro- step number one, aim at the right goal. So if we're talking about just like, and you can use this with anything, hey, I want to become, you know, I want to become more patient. So the goal is patience, right? Um, or use it in business. I mean, I want to have this deal um, by the end of the year. I want to close on this deal. That's your goal, right? Second, determine the steps that you need to achieve that goal. So in order for me to close that deal at the end of the, of the year, or in order for me to become a patient person, or you fill in the blank, right? Then I need to do these types of things in order to be that type of person, okay? And then the third aspect is, what do you think? Habitually practice those steps, all right? So aim at the right goal, or aim at whatever goal you're shooting for, determine the steps that you need to get there, and then habitually do those steps, all right? Are you guys tracking with me? So it's, it's pretty simple, but this is Aristotelian virtue formation. And Aristotle believed that if, you, if the goal is human flourishing and courage, um, justice, prudence, temperance, that you could determine those were the cardinal virtues and then determine what steps you needed to get to those things. And then in order to become a virtuous person, you just habitually did them. You disciplined yourself to do those things. Okay? Um, Change for Aristotle came, through, came, came as a person disciplined himself to practice those steps, okay? And then um, here is the problem with Aristotelian virtue formation, um, is that all of this centers around your behavior. Formation, according to Aristotle's form of, of, of virtue formation was purely external. Do these things, do these things, do these things, and you will become a virtuous person, right? That is, um, that is, uh, those are not the same thing. If you do, if you do, if you do, you do not become, right? Yeah, totally. Which, what's your name? Terry. Terry brought us to our next slide. Bam! Moral formation, (laughs) all right? Um, and, And in this, look, the goal is morality, it's for us, it's saying, hey, I just want to be a moral person. And, and for a lot of us, frankly, guys, we believe that, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about creedal, I'm talking about functionally. Our functional belief is not necessarily that we should love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our functional theology is basically, I just want to be a good person. Right? I, I, I mean, I, and I, I, I can't quantify this, but I would, I would venture to guess that most people right? Or even most Christians are not even concerned with the greatest commandment. They're just concerned with being a good person, with having the right sorts of behavior. And so the goal is morality. The cardinal virtues are moral behaviors. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I give to the church. I give to my neighbor. I I serve, you know, on a team. I'm, I'm active in ministry. I'm doing all of the right things. I'm a moral, I'm a good person, right? Um, and the process includes all the same things. Aim at the right goal. Determine the steps needed to achieve the goal. Habitually practice those steps. And then here is the problem, guys. That sends you into the moralist, the Christian moralist cycle. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3 says this. 
if I can find it. (laughs) Are you foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Right? Paul is writing to the Galatians who have freely received the gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then they are trying to um, bring about the change in their lives through their own effort. Guys, how many of us do that? How many of us say, hey, in justification, Lord, I need you to save me from being dead and, and guilty before you. I need you to say that I'm not guilty and bring me back to life. And Lord, I need you for that. And then we drop the whole need of the Lord. We say, all right, I'm saved. Now I'm just going to try really hard for the rest of my life. So this first part, Lord, was all about you, but the rest of it is about my effort. Me trying harder. All right. So we fail. I mean, obviously we fail because you cannot keep the law of God. Don't even try it. So we fail which brings about guilt and shame, which brings about neurotic self-talk. Man, I should have kept the law of God. I can keep the law of God. In other words, I can bring about this change in my own life. I'll try harder. I'll do better next time. How many of you guys have ever said that before? Man, I'm raising both of my hands. You know what I'm saying? Hey, Holy Spirit, I need you to justify me. But when it becomes, comes to sanctification, that is my work alone. Man, I have told God that. All right, not verbally. That's probably the first time I've ever said that verbally. But functionally, I have lived that way. Right? Again, creedal theology, functional theology. I don't care what you say. I care what you do. All right? So we'll... We'll fail. There will be guilt and shame. We'll just start self-talk. It's it's neurotic. Oh, man, I should have done this. I can do this. I'll try harder. I'll do better next time, right? So what do we do? We we implement a plan. We we will even sit down and draw this junk out. We will be like, step one, do this. Step two, you know, um, put put another filter on your computer. Step three, you you know, um, go to this self-help group. Step four, um, work the steps, And we'll plan to improve our behavior through this um, moralism. And then guess what? We act, and then we fail to act, right? We get caught in this cycle of like, okay, I'm going to try harder next time, so I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, and you fail again. Back to step one. And you try, and you try, and you try, and boom, you fail again. Back to step one. And it becomes this, this Christian moralism cycle. Okay? Change comes through discipline for the, for the moralist. And I just try harder. I got to try harder. I got to try harder in my own power. And just like the Aristotelian virtue formation, for moral formation, formation occurs where? Externally. But where is sin? Red Sox, where is sin? You said it earlier. It's in our heart, right? And so what's the problem with, what's the fundamental problem of Christian moral formation? Okay, well, number one, it's not changing anything, but why is it not changing anything? Okay, why is it not getting to our heart? Bam. Right, because this, all of this is void of the Holy Spirit. 
The change agent in Christian moralism is you. Good luck with that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Good luck with that. How's that, how's, you know, how's that go down? How's that working for you? Not very well. Right? We at our heart, who we are fundamentally on the inside is we're rebels. That's who we are. We've rebelled against God. And we cannot fix a relational problem by external behavioral modification. You can't do it. Okay? Ten more minutes to go through Christian spiritual formation, and then we're going to take a break, and you guys can be like, man, that guy's... All right. So, Christian spiritual formation, all right? Now, then what, what you guys are going to be like, wait a second, is that Christian spiritual formation structurally is going to look very similar to Aristotelian virtue formation, okay? Because in some sense, there's a reason that Aristotle believed what he did, because when it does come to functionally working, then it does. Like, behavioral, behaviors can change through that. Just, it's just an external change, and your heart is still really dark, and you'll continue to fail over and over and over again, okay? Um, in Christian spiritual formation, the goal is who? Notice I didn't say the goal is what. I said the goal is who? Hello? Yeah, the goal is God himself, okay? What did we say from the beginning? That discipleship is fundamentally what? Relational, right? We've offended, we've relationally offended God. And so the goal in Christian spiritual formation and and dealing with the sanctification gap is not to try harder, it's to just pursue God. And because you're pursuing God, you're going to be pursuing his kingdom because that's what God is doing, okay? Secondly, the virtues are the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Okay? What are all of those things? Out of, what are those things manifestations of? Your heart. Those things come out of what the Spirit is doing in your heart. Right? So, so the, the virtues in, in Christian spiritual formation is, is, is uh, uh, the first one in the list is love, right? To love God and love other people and everything else flows from that. Thirdly, the process includes this, focusing um, not on the goal, which is intimacy with God, a relationship with your creator, a relationship with the one who, has, who is, um, who is re- who's redeeming the world and who's inviting you to participate with him in that process. It's a relationship with God. Second, through the Spirit in conjunction with Scripture, determine the steps needed to cultivate what? Not behavior. To cultivate intimacy. All right, how many of you guys are married? All right, easy question. All right, probably half of us, okay? Um, Or in a serious relationship with somebody else. All right, more, okay. So, if you try to, if I, if I went home to my wife and said, hey, Margaret, um, hey, love you, but, uh, you know, I'm, I got to go over here. I got to do this. I got to do my own thing. I got to do this over here. I got to do this over here. I got to do this over here. And I'm never actually with her. What does that do to our marriage? All right. Is that good or bad? 
Okay, good. Yeah, that's, that's good. You're right. That's bad. Okay. Um, so that, that's bad for our marriage. And so um, what I'm saying is, is that in order for me to cultivate that relationship that, that really does bring me a, a, you know, a lot of joy and fulfillment as, as a man, as, as, as uh, she is a gift from God, then in order for me to, to, in order for me to, uh, to live in intimacy with her, the, the, the answer is not to not try at all. It's just to try in a relational aspect to cultivate intimacy with her. So I can't just say, hey, Morgan, I'm going to go do a bunch of things for you and never see her. I need to start with her and say, hey, how can I love you? How can I be with you? How can I address relational needs in your life? And then out of that flows the things that I would do for her. Does that make sense? Okay, it's the same thing in Christian spiritual formation. In order for you to... um, uh, in order for you to, to walk with the Father, then through the power of the Holy Spirit, determining the steps of saying, hey, Lord, how can I cultivate intimacy with you in my life? And then in the power of the Spirit, remember, not in your own power, but in the power of the Spirit, you habitually practice those steps. All right, in the Christ-centered life, when there's disobedience, because there will be, okay? Again, no, it's like I made that precursor earlier. Like, hey, we are, we're not perfect. This is not something that's just like automatic and we begin to, you know, levitate because we're so holy or something, right? I mean, this is a really messy process. So the Christ-centered cycle, as opposed to the moral formation cycle, is disobedience, right? So we, we're kind of like, Lord, I know that you're on the throne of my life, but man, I just, you know, I went my own way over here, Okay. Um, so the second thing is, is the Holy Spirit at work in your heart is convicting you about that heart issue that you've rebelled against God's kingship in your life. Thirdly, instead of, you know, instead of guilt and shame, you, there is a Holy Spirit conviction, and then you begin, or Christ, you begin to do Christ-centered talk. I cannot deal with guilt and shame. I don't even want to deal with guilt and shame in my, my own failure. Only Christ can deal with this. Right? So you're literally saying, I'm, I am taking myself um, out of the equation to try to behaviorally fix this, and I'm flying to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because only he can handle it. Fourth, you confess. Right? An, an, an appropriate response to your rebellion against God is for you to own it. That's why I said be honest about your sin. Take that to the Lord, and as the Lord leads you, take that to other people. Confess, be honest. Hey, Lord, you know, I, man, I just struggled with lust and I got to be honest with you. I wasn't even thinking about you. I wanted to sit on the throne of my own life. So instead of being like, well, Lord, she, you know, she walked right in front of me. She wasn't, she was only like half dressed. I mean, it's her fault. Like, don't push it on somebody else. Own your sin. It's you. It's who you are at a fundamental level. So confess that. Um, ask for the Holy Spirit to move in that. And then repentance and obedience in the power of the Spirit. Again, what, what am, what, what's the difference between this slide and the other one? The Holy Spirit is the one who is driving this whole process for, for, their, for you to bring about change. And then the next time there's disobedience, you do the exact same thing. You fly to the cross, you confess, you repent, and you obey in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? This is the Christ-centered cycle in spiritual formation. Fourthly, Change comes as, as we habitually agree with the Spirit's work in our lives. Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Thessalonians 5.19. What do both of those say? But essentially, what do they say? Do not quench the Spirit. 
Okay? I mean, there are, then, we, then we come up against this, we come up against the wall and we're like, well, I've either got to choose my own kingdom or I've got to choose what the Holy Spirit is convicting me of and choose God's kingdom. Which kingdom am I going to choose? And that's when you say, Lord, Holy Spirit, um, give me the strength. You have to give me the strength to choose your way. And it, that is walking in the power of the Spirit, that, that the Holy Spirit would, would empower you to agree with what he's doing in your life. And then lastly, formation occurs in the heart. Okay? This is, this is how we are transformed is that God is, is bringing our, he's, he's bringing our heart into conformity with who he is already, with what he has already declared our heart to be. And that is the heart of his son, the heart of his daughter. Someone who accurately reflects his image in the world. Right? The, the reason that we tend toward moral formation as opposed to Christian spiritual formation is because we do not necessarily... Um, <sighs> Let me personalize it. The reason I tend toward moral formation instead of um, tending toward Christian spiritual formation is because I tend to not walk in intimacy with God. That's it. Right? Um, I'll, I'll be really busy. I'll do a lot of active stuff. I'll do a lot of ministry. But um, somehow in the midst of all of that, God himself kind of gets left out of it. Right? And, and a lot of people are really frustrated because they don't know why they're not changing. And you get out the calendar and you track their time and you say, man, where are you cultivating intimacy with God? And the answer f- from their calendar and from their money and from their time is I'm not cultivating intimacy with God. And I'll look back and I'm going to say, well, then why do you expect change? God is the one who changes you. So go be with him. Walk intimately with him. It is, a, it is all about a relationship. Um, and this, frankly, guys, this is why sin is attractive to us. The reason that sin is attractive is because our souls are starved. We're drinking from the wrong well. Sin is only attractive to a starved soul. Right? Really good stuff. John, okay, yeah. John um, is also from Fort Worth, and uh, he came up to me during, uh, during the break and asked a good question, just kind of like, hey, as we're talking about with this with other people, I mean, how do you articulate, um, you know, the difference between actual spiritual formation and moral formation? Because that's, I mean... Most people you're talking to, frankly, are, are moralists. I mean, even if they don't believe that they are, that's functionally what they're doing. And so um, uh, I just told them, I was like, hey, for a new book, for a new Christian um, that you're like sharing the gospel with or something like that, I mean, there's, that person just needs to hear the gospel. And as you'll see as we go through the journey um, aspect of discipleship, I mean, it's, uh, um, it really follows kind of the same stages of human development. So like, you know, uh, uh, infancy, childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, adulthood, and then, you know, in the twilight years. And, and uh, it's, just, it's kind of the same thing with, with uh, development and developmental growth in Christ. And so just like you would tell a, a child, like, hey, I'm not going to explain to you why you need to obey me. You just need to obey, right? I mean, there's a sense of like, don't touch that, the stove, 
Um, and the kid's like, well, explain to me why I should not touch this stuff. No, they're going to, they just need to obey, right? And so um, that is the, that's, and frankly, that's, that's a lot of what I'm wrestling with right now in my own personal discipleship to Jesus as I lead and shepherd other people is how do you take someone who has been formed in to be a moralist and how, how do you transform that into someone who is, is participating in, in Christian spiritual formation, who's actually walking in the spirit and, and uh, doing the disciplines for the, for the sake of Christ and not just their own behavior. So there is tension there because especially at the beginning, um, it's very easily, it's very easy to, for, for someone to be formed morally as opposed to walking with Christ. And that, I mean, I think that that's why it's so crucial that we participate not only in our own personal discipleship to Jesus with the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, but we also become well-read and well-versed in that, well-experienced, basically, so that we can help other people around us who don't know, they don't know how to put flesh and bone on that. We can help guide them. I mean, it, some people call it like a spiritual coach, right? Um, but obviously, you can't coach somebody on something that you've never done yourself, right? So um, it's important um, to be practicing this stuff. So it's a journey. There's, there's two books. Um, actually, neither one of them are back there. Um, but these two books, one's by Bruce Demarest. He's, uh, he's, uh, uh, the, uh, he leads the spiritual formation department at Denver Seminary um, and uh, is a really good dude. I've spent some time around him. And you just talk about a guy like you, you uh, I can't remember the exact passage, but the New Testament talks about being the aroma of Christ, right? This guy is the aroma of Christ. Like when you're around him, you're just like, what? I mean, just a, there's just a deep maturity there. It's really cool. So his book, Seasons of the Soul, um, a lot of the content that I'm going to be giving you guys was taught by him to me this summer. So I'm regurgitating it to you. All right. Um, that sounds really bad, but uh, maybe I'm vomiting it. <laughs> that sounds worse. Um, and then the other one is, uh, is the critical journey, um, uh, stages in the life of faith. So if you guys are, as we move through this stuff, just realize like this is not original. In fact, none of this is original to me, right? I've had faithful men and women, um, in my life who have, who have walked ahead of me and have taught me and discipled me. And I am now, you know, passing this information along to you guys, okay? That's the way it always works. There are no original ideas, right? Except, well, you want to get to Jesus. He's got some original stuff, right? Okay, so the critical journey. Here's, um, there are six major uh, stages with an interlude in between. And, and uh, here are some disclaimers about these stages, stages of growth in, in, the, in the life of a disciple, okay? One is the stages are consecutive, which means you can't skip one. <laughs> it's not like you can go from one to like five, right? Um, and so they are consecutive. You have to move through them. But they're also um, fluid, which means you can be in stage one, dip into stage two, and then revert back to stage one, okay? Or be in multiple stages at the same time, okay? So this is, as I teach this, it's going to seem very linear, and it's not, okay? It, in fact, I think a better way to think about it metaphorically is to think of a spiral, an upward spiral, Okay? Um, or, an, or kind of an upward just conglomeration of stuff. So earlier I said justification is this, glorification is over here, and that sanctification is kind of this linear line up to glorification, when really it looks more like a massive roller coaster, okay? You're up and down and all around. This is a, like I've said multiple times today, discipleship to Jesus is a messy process because God is weeding the sin out of your life, okay? That is not going to be clean. It's going to look really hard and, and tough, 
Okay, so they're consecutive, but also fluid. Secondly, you can occupy more than one stage at a time. All right, and then, um, which I already talked about. And then thirdly is the stages progress as we cooperate with the Spirit's work in our lives. So the Spirit is constantly calling you, convicting you of sin and righteousness. He's constantly calling you to the perfect standard set by Jesus. That is the end game. It's for you to be transformed to the image of Christ. And the, and the Holy Spirit is constantly in your life um, convicting you of sin, encouraging you in, in, um, to, and really not just encouraging you, He is pushing you and pulling you at the same time, guiding you to, uh, to uh, reflect the image of Christ in your life, in your heart, really, and then outwardly in your life. And so um, we progress in these stages as we surrender, okay? So again, beginning, right? Kingdom of God already here, not yet completed. Why? Because there are competing kingdoms. And God is all about killing your kingdom. <laughs> that's what God wants to do. He wants to kill your king, right? Which is you. And he wants to, that's why he said, if anybody wants to come after me, then deny himself and take up his cross. Die on it, right? And follow me. Um, all this stuff it, it, uh, plays into to, to itself. All right. Stage one, the converted life. <clears throat> the converted life is when, is, right, is when a person becomes a Christian. They are con- convicted of their sin and their, their uh, fallenness from God. They, have, they realize that they have rebelled and they um, become Christian. They place their faith in Jesus um, by, uh, by, by the grace of God. And this stage in, in what we'll just call like, we'll just call this the infant stage too, the converted life, is it's characterized by new birth in Christ. So you, there is an excitement. I mean, one thing that's really cool as a new dad, I have a six-month-old, is that everything baby Nate does is amazing. He like sat up the other day and I was like, yeah! You know, like, I mean, he's starting to like, he's not crawling yet, but he's scooting. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, and, and I, we get excited. He gets excited because he's like, I have no idea what's going on or why you people are like, you know, doing this. But I mean, he gets excited about eating. He gets excited about, you know, going to the bathroom. He, gets, he does not get excited about bedtime. Um, but pretty much everything else is exciting for him. And so there is a newness to it. There's very much a, um, there's a consolation where, where you, you're just, you're pumped. Hey, let's do this. I'm a Christian. Let's go, you know? Um, and I'm at, this was very true in my life. When I was an eight-year-old boy, I mean, I used to tell people like, let's charge hell with a water pistol, you know? It's like, well, okay. I mean, um, <laughs> that needs to get tempered a little bit, but I like the passion, you know. That's, the, that's kind of the, what characterizes this, this uh, stage. Typically what happens is people get really excited, but then um, they get stuck in this stage because um, they, they sense that, like, okay, I, um, I am a new convert, but I don't know anything. Like, somebody will ask them, hey, what is so-and-so, what's, what is the theological position for superlapsarianism? And they're like, what? You said what, right? Actually, that is a position, just so I didn't make that word up. Um, so, so people are like, what is that? You know, and because they can't articulate that, they'll just be like, I don't know. Ah, and they kind of run away from it, right? And so um, they, they lack understanding. And because they lack understanding, they can get stuck if they don't have somebody come into their life to encourage them and to really spur them on, all right? So progress is seen um, from, this, from this perspective as people, um, as, as people get into community, as people join a small group, um, or as they follow an effective leader, okay? Um, I know for me, the guy, the guy that brought me out of the converted life and progressed me to the next stage was my dad, okay? I have, I have godly parents, and, and uh, literally, I, was, I placed my faith in Jesus um, 
December the 30th, 1986. And the next week, my dad began to teach me in the converted life, right? He began to teach me what Christianity is. What is the decision that you just made? What is God doing in your life? Where, how do you fit into, the, into God's mission? Um, and so from an eight-year-old boy, I, I started reading my Bible. I could, you know, um, have you guys ever seen the Navigator 2-7 series? Um, or design for discipleship, um, or some discipleship tools that are out there. Um, I began to do those things, and so um, for me, that that effective leader in my life was my was my dad. For a lot of guys, especially at Watermark, um, joining a small group and getting into community is the natural push to get them out of the converted life where they're just like, you know, kind of spiritual infancy. Okay, does anybody have any questions about this so far? Pretty clear, clear as mud. All right, <clears throat> stage two is the learning life. This stage is typically characterized by learning about God and the basis of the faith. And typically, people get into programs, okay? This is where we're like, hey, come get into community, step one. Step two, um, join, do equip disciple. Do women's Bible study. Do summit men's Bible study. Do, equi- do training days. Do stuff like that. And you literally are just learning. I mean, you're just learning like, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm learning who God is. I'm learning how I fit into that whole story. I learned... Um, I'm, I'm learning about what I need to be doing. Um, I need to, you know, you know that what some of these, um, these things are that, that need to manifest themselves in my life. And typically, the, that growth occurs in some sort of structured um, group or system or program, okay? Um, and, and you'll see here in a second how all this stuff ties together. Um, so people get stuck here because they, because they think that um, the program that they're involved in is discipleship. And so they'll go join a small group that a guy has, and they'll be like, man, I am a disciple now, and I'm getting discipled by another disciple. And, and, and the problem is, is that may only last a year, 18 months, two years at the most. And then what happens? They're not in the small group anymore. And so they're like, well, am I not doing discipleship anymore? I mean, um, I, I don't know. It's like they, they begin to equate discipleship with a program. And, and, uh, and frankly, I mean, the problem here is, especially if the leader of the program is a very charismatic, very, uh, if he's a really good teacher, then people will associate the knowledge that they gain from that person with, um, uh, with the type of discipleship that they will seek for, really for the rest of their life. A good example of this, you guys ever heard of Tommy Nelson? All right. Tommy Nelson, the pastor of Denton Bible Church, really good dude, all right? Um, Dallas Seminary guy, and, and uh, he has a program at his church called the Young Guns Program. Young Guns Program. And guys from all over the country can go and sit under his leadership for a year. And, he, and it is Tommy Nelson's program, it, well, Tommy Nelson's discipleship methodology is a program. People go, they sit, he teaches, they learn, that's it. I mean, for the most part, Tommy's program, Tommy's deal never gets beyond the learning life. It dips into the next stage, but he camps out here because that's what he's really good at. He's a really good teacher. So people learn from him, right? Um, I mean, I've, I've, I have not gone through the program myself, but I, a, a lot of my friends have. And I mean, their biggest, you know, their biggest critique of that is like, hey, that, that whole relational aspect of, uh, of, a, of a teacher to the student is almost entirely missing there. You know, it's literally come in, sit down, I teach, you learn. Okay. And so for those guys, as they come out of that program, the, the temptation that they have is I learned from this guy. 
Now, you learn from someone else, and so it really becomes kind of a we versus them mentality of like, well, I learned over here, and you're learning over there, and uh, it's not the same. I was taught better, and it becomes this like competition. And people literally, I mean, I know this for a fact because I've seen it. People get stuck here, and they never progress beyond it. This becomes the, the Christian life for them, just simply regurgitating what they've been taught to other people, okay? However, progress is made through a nurturing relationship and by someone who's like, hey, you know what? I know I've learned, but now it's time for me to step out. It's time for me to teach. It's time for me to help other people. It's time for me to grow in that area. And, and what people typically find is as they do step out in faith and they do begin to serve um, in the power of the Holy Spirit, then, then the Lord begins to teach them stuff that that teacher that they sat under for so long could never have taught them, okay? Experience is the best teacher, Right? Did you know that only 10%, only about 10% of what is taught um, in a classroom is actually retained by the student? Right? Do you know how much, of, how much information is retained by someone who experiences something? About 80%. Right? So toss them in the water. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sink or swim, buddy. All right? And so in, in a lot of ways, it's like, um, man... Uh, this is an important stage. It, it builds a foundation for a, for a uh, orthodox theology, which is crucial, all right? But, um, man, we cannot stay here, all right? Any questions about that? All right, stage three, the productive life, all right? This is where guys are, I mean, this stage is totally, this stage is totally marked by just activity and, frankly, a lot of times hyperactivity, doing things for God, all right, it's a, um, there's a strong emphasis um, placed here on somebody's uh, personal success, um, not only in ministry, but also in their, in their own vocation. And so um, basically, our, our, uh, we measure how well we're doing in spiritual formation by how many new converts we have, by the amount of production that comes out of our church. We measure it by money and numbers, Right? That people who live in the productive life, this is how they, this is the paradigm through which they view their world. It's all about, hey, um, it's all about who can we, who else can we get? Who, what else can we produce? You know, what, what else can we do for God? It's all about activism, right? Um, look, people get stuck here because they view their life and ministry through the lens of their own performance, right? And in a lot of ways, um, even though, even though creedily they would tell you like, yes, I am doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Most of the time they're not functionally. They're just spinning the wheel and, and it becomes like, you know, Hey, uh, I mean, what they define as doing something in the power of the Holy Spirit is right before they get up to preach or pray or sing or go witness or whatever. They just say a two minute prayer and bam, off they go. We're in the Holy Spirit, right? Because we prayed, we prayed right before we started. And that equals the Holy Spirit moving in our lives, right? Which really, the prayer is kind of an afterthought. I mean, if you look at the person's life, they're not laboring in prayer with the Holy Spirit to produce what the Spirit wants to produce in that person's life, right? It becomes all about activism. And typically, people burn out here because you can only spin those wheels in your own power for so long, right? I mean, burnout is, um, burnout is, how common is burnout? Let me ask you that. How many of y'all have seen someone just fizzle out? All right, uh, qu- quite a few, right? Um, this is why, okay? Um, it's, 
man, you can be, and frankly, this is really dangerous for a guy like me too, because in a lot of ways I can, I can get up here and teach you guys and, and, and kind of regurgitate what I've learned and what I've internalized in my own life. And I can do it and, and say, you know, yeah, that was good, you know, next, right? And just continue to totally continually um, do things in my own strength and, my, and rely on my own education, rely on my own experience, rely on all that stuff, instead of saying, Lord, unless you do it, it doesn't get done, right? And so um, in this productive life, man, it can get really, really, really dangerous. And, and uh, progress is seen um, as people reassess what exactly the spiritual life is, right? And so in, in ministry activism, we're like, man, just go and do, go and do, go and do. And after a while, somebody's like, man, there's got to be more than this, right? It can't just be me serving on, on an outreach team. It can't just be me witnessing all the time. It can't just be me doing something for God, right? There's got to be more than that. And there's the, because frankly, you're, you're, you're doing a lot of activity around the core central part of who you are and, and leaving that core central part of who you are largely untouched. Okay. Having a mentor, having a mentor during this time, in, in, in the life of a disciple is, is really, really important. Somebody who has matured beyond that to another stage where you can look at that guy's life and just be like, man, I, I'll do anything to get around that guy. I'll do anything to have that person shepherd me as I you know, participate in my own discipleship to Jesus. Okay? Um, here is the hard truth. Most Christians never progress past this point. And we've still got three more stages. That's the hard truth. Okay, and here's a lot of the reason is because of the next interlude, right? And that's the wall. <laughs> People hit the wall. Okay, it, it's I'm excited, yay, you know, and and oh, I'm learning. This is so cool, and oh, I'm productive, and then bam, they hit the wall, right? This is uh, let, let's call this the midlife crisis, right? I mean, it, some guys that are you know, coming, at, coming in the middle of their life and they, they tip what's associated with the midlife crisis, you begin to question everything, right? It's like, man, what is my purpose? Why am I here? What in the world have I been doing for the last 20 years? Does that even matter, right? That's, that's what, those are some typical things that are associated with the midlife crisis. So, I mean, it, and typically the wall, when you're talking about this, this is characterized by, it, it, it absolutely is characterized by crisis. That's a good word to call it pain, disappointment. Um, and typically that's associated with some sort of life transition. It can be associated with external trauma, something that happens to you, whether it's the loss of a loved one or um, some sort of relational struggle or just, you know, you've been sinned deeply against. Uh, um, it, it, can, it can also include an internal struggle, like I said, where you just, you know, you just question everything. And, and what John of the Cross um, you know, an old mystic wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul, all right? And this is typically where, um, when, when you think about an infant, and it, um, I'm using this language, uh, I'm going to try to be careful with it, but when you think about an infant, um, and I'm thinking about my son because he's breastfeeding right now, and, and, uh, and it's a really apt metaphor because um, what he gains from breastfeeding is not only his, his physical nourishment, but he also gains a lot of consolation from that, right? He is bonding with his mother, I mean, how many moms do we have in here? Okay. Two. 
awesome, all right? I mean, that's, that's where it's like, hey, I mean, there, there's more happening when, when a child is, is, is nourishing from his mother than just him getting milk, right? There is, there's a consolation there. There's a closeness. There's an intimacy. And what happens is in the, that's where, that's where the new Christian is in the converted life. He is, he is nursing from the, the consolation of the spirit of God. I mean, I feel close. I feel intimate. I feel all of this stuff. And then I'm learning about God and this is amazing, you know, and now I'm doing things for God. And then all of a sudden, guess what the Lord does? Now listen to me. The Lord does this. He starts to pull him, his, he starts to pull the emotional attachment to him away. Right? God causes that. Why? Because he doesn't want us to remain an infant. He is maturing us. Look, the Christian life is not about an emotional experience with God. The Christian life is about walking in intimately and deeply with the Father. And you cannot do that if, if, all, if your entire paradigm for who God is is a good feeling that you get when you go to church and sing your favorite worship song. Right? The Lord is the one that will bring a dark night of the soul into your life. To, to remove that ministry of consolation from you so that you're not dependent on his ministry to you, you're actually dependent on the person of the Father through the sacrifice of, the, of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Okay, he is inviting you through the pain. He is inviting you into deeper intimacy with him. How many of us have ever thought about that before? Man, I'm going through this struggle. The Lord must have done this, Right? I mean, most of the time we think of pain and struggle and all that stuff as like, God, get me out of it. And what the Lord is inviting you to do is, hey, sit in it. Settle in. I want to take you deep. I'm taking the floaties off of your arms to teach you to swim in the deep end. There is, an, there is a relational intimacy with God and a closeness with him that can only be experienced on the other side of this type of pain. I'm not lying to you. Okay? Um, now, some of you guys are like, man, does that mean the Lord caused this enormous amount of pain? Does this mean the, the Lord caused that person to sin against me? The Lord caused... I'm not saying that, okay? Let me nuance this. The Lord is allowing things that naturally happen in a fallen world, like we talked about earlier, um, and, and, and he is using the enemy's tactics, right, um, to create an enormous amount of depth in your life through the pain that is already there. Yep, send it. It totally can. Absolutely, yep. Absolutely. Because, uh, I mean, you think about it, an early Christian, you know, or, or a, new, a, a new Christian is going to be, I mean, he, he's typically, a new Christian is going to, you know, um, is going to struggle probably a little less with his sin because he doesn't even know what to call it yet, 
right? And so um, as we grow, then our sin becomes much more pronounced because we know what it is. We know that it's there. We know that the Holy Spirit is moving in our life to weed that stuff out. And so it becomes a lot more obvious to us. And what, and, and, you know, in some ways the Lord is doing that in my life right now is that there are, there's, there are some thrones in my life that I'm struggling to give over to the Lord. And I'm saying, hey, all right, Lord, I know that you want that, but I'm going to fight you, you know? And, and, and the, the Lord uses my fighting against him to bring about an enormous amount of angst in my life that he then uses to take the floaties off, right? When do we move? We move when it's painful, always. That's human behavior. Like we, we always get really nervous about the tension points in our lives. Hey, get ready when a tension point is in your life because you're about to move. I'm not, not like physically moved to like Arizona or something. You're about to fit, you're about to, you know, in your own um, uh, emotional life or spiritual life or whatever, if God is bringing a tension point in your life, it's because he's about to move you, right? That's how we grow. It's the same thing with kids, you know? Yeah, go ahead. On the just of God your floaties off. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I mean, I would give you, <laughs> I give you the whole Bible, right? I mean, um, so we see, um, especially in the Old Testament, right? These cycles of sin and judges, right? The Lord is calling the nation of Israel back to Him through the Canaanites coming and slaughtering them, right? And the Lord is saying, "Look, I'm." In fact, how about a. Um, uh, Habakkuk, you guys, uh, you guys, Habakkuk chapter one, right? Have you all ever heard this verse, verse or voice? Have you ever heard this uh, verse before? Um, behold, um, behold, I'm about to do something in your midst that you would not believe even if you were told, right? Have you ever heard that verse before? Most people are thinking like, yes, Lord, bring something amazing into my life. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about bringing the Babylonians to Jerusalem to annihilate the city, right? Because the Lord is like, I, your sin is unacceptable. I will judge you, but there's hope, right? So, I mean, I, you know, that's where I would point you. I mean, it, the whole, the entire scriptural narrative is that right there. I mean, it, it is about God um, saying, look, I want to dwell among my people, but in order for me to do that, your sin's got to go. And in order for your sin got to go, I have to bring you to a tension point in order to, in order to move you, Okay. Totally. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I would tell you from my own experience, my wall um, was 2005. Okay. And, and, uh, and I'm praying that the Lord doesn't hit, make me cause, cause me to hit another wall like that, but maybe, I don't know. Um, but I'll tell you, um, Job was a huge book for me um, during that time because there's so much pain right? And Job, rightly so, because he didn't, I mean, Job's like, what did I do? And he's justified in it. The text says that. He's a righteous man. And, and Job's like, what did I do? And, and uh, in the midst of all of that, um, the, Lord is, the Lord is saying, hey, um, uh, that's why I love the end of Job. I think it's chapter 40, um, where Job says, I had heard about you, right? In my immaturity, I heard about God. But then what does he say? But now I see you face to face. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes, right? And for me, that's what the wall was for me. 
I knew a lot of things about God and I knew, and I had a relationship with the Lord. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was, I was, man, I was moving and shaking. I was all kinds of people getting saved, you know, hallelujah. And bam. And, and out of that, out of that wall that I hit, I very much resonated with that verse that said, okay, I get it. Um, I'd heard about you, but now I see you and I see you in my pain. Um, a great, if you guys want to dig, dig deeper into this, read C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, right? And I, I wish I had the quote pulled up right now, but basically what he says is, hey, um, over a sketch idly made to amuse a child, um, an artist would not give much toil to it, right? He'd just draw something out and hand it to a child. But over his masterpiece, the work of his life, he will give that painting, if it's sentient, if it's changeable, he would give that painting an enormous amount of toil and trouble because, he's, because that painting is his masterpiece. And that's what he's doing in our lives, right? <clears throat> People experience a diminished emotional attraction to God, like I talked about. They're moving away from the ministry of consolation. And frankly, people get in trouble here because instead of sitting in it, they want to run away from it. And because they're trying to run away from it, they literally are running away from what God is trying to do in their lives and they become disillusioned, right? Or they can become disillusioned. Um, and, and this is where I said before where they'll revert back to unhealthy coping mechanisms. Um, and then in a lot of ways, guys, mo- you know, a lot of, in a lot of ways, many Christians don't ever move past the wall. They never learn that they're supposed to sit in it and let God do what God is doing and agree with the process and, and allow the Holy Spirit to move and, and bring them beyond that wall. And, and they get stuck in, and frankly, they get stuck in their own immaturity. They never mature into the, what we would consider adult phases of, of the Christian life and, and the discipleship to Jesus um, because they're not, will, they're not able um, or willing to move past this wall. Um, progress, yeah. Okay, I'm getting a little behind, but no, never fear. <clears throat> all right. Um, progress is made as we surrender um, our ego. All right. Look, when you hit a wall like this, guess what dies? Guess what? You, you have this extreme sense of, okay, I thought I was in control, and I know, now I know that I'm not. I thought that I could manage my behavior. Now I know that I can't. I thought I could you know, participate in moral deism, but now I know that I can't. This is where many people begin to just internalize, um, they begin to internalize the gospel. I mean, they, you, they can tell it to you, they believe it, they'll, they'll regurgitate it, but this is where it becomes uh, really deeply rooted in the psyche of a person, okay, is when they hit the wall. So we surrender our egos, we surrender our wounds, we surrender, our, our, we surrender all claims of entitlement to ourselves. It's gone. We give it to the Lord, all right? And, and, uh, and we agree with what God is doing, which moves us into stage four, which is the inward life. This is characterized by a deliberate journey. Notice I said deliberate, all right? This is intentional. You are intentionally doing this. It's characterized by a deliberate journey to engage the deepest part of yourself. Self-examination and questioning are really common here. This is where God is reordering us. He's saying, okay, now I'm going to take you and I'm going to go much deeper. I'm going to give you a much deeper reality about who I am and who you are in light of who I am. And I'm going to show you my, you know, I'm going to show you the, my own, my nature. And, and so you, you begin to examine everything. You begin to question a lot of stuff. I mean, and that's not bad. In fact, if you've never questioned anything Frankly, you're still a, you're still a spiritual infant. I mean, um, that, I know that can be hard, but it's true. Um, 
Christ replaces the ego, and the focus shifts from doing, hey, I'm doing ministry activism, going, 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 moral, for, moral formation, doing behavior, behavior, behavior. It goes from doing and, and becomes a being. I'm going to be with Christ. He is the end, not what I can do for him. All right? And, and when that happens, that's when you begin to significantly heal. That's when you begin to experience an enormous amount of, of transformation in your heart, okay? Um, people get stuck in this because in their self-assessing, in their questioning, um, they, never, they never move beyond it, right? They become um, uh, introspective in, a, in an unhealthy way, that's, and that's definitely a danger here, all right? Progress is made um, in the practice of stillness as you reflect and you surrender, Okay, um, I'm a, a mature friend, uh, a mentor, a coach, someone like that who's a little further down the road is crucial in this, in this, uh, in this stage to help you progress and move forward. Stage five is the outward life. The outward life is characterized by a renewed and, and in parentheses, I put this, all right, a renewed and a much deeper passion to participate with God in his mission. Okay? Um, this is where, um, again, the answer, the answer to moral, form is moral formation or the doing in your own strength, the answer to that is not to just quit and not do anything. Right? The answer to it is for you to move deeper so that when you do begin to practice what God has called you to do, you're doing it out of a heart that's been transformed by the Spirit of God and not in your own strength. Because in your own strength, you cannot keep the law of God. The ego is dead. Ministry is done for the sake of Christ. The results are in his hands. Yeah, right? if, you're, if you're ministering in the power of the Spirit and nothing is happening, you don't go into a business room and say, okay, we really need to grow by like 30% next year. So man, what can we do? What can we do? No. You minister out of an intimacy that comes from you walking with Christ and the results truly, truly the results are up to Christ. The end is God, not what you can do for him. People, hey, look, when you start to get into stage five and six, if you're this person and the world is looking at you, the, you can seem very much out of touch with the world and a church that focuses on heavy production and winning, Right? Man, the churches that explode and have 50,000 people, man, they must be doing something right over there. Let's, everybody runs over there. And how can we win? How can we be successful if, when we're measuring success by numbers? How can we get the next, you know, thousand people converted to Christ? How can we, how can we, how can we? That's dead. It's dead in the outward life. It, 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 God is the end. And what you do for him is, is, an, is an overflow of what God is, is doing in your heart. He's changing you from the inside out. Progress is made through continued surrender, from practicing the presence of God, from revisiting the wall if you need to. The Lord can bring another wall to take, to take you into deeper intimacy with him. It can create another opportunity for growth. A, a mature friend is crucial um, in this stage. And then lastly, the life of love. The life of love is characterized by unconditional love. 
This is full integration of being and knowing and doing. There is little, and I would even say no, little, no would be glorification, so let's, let's leave little in there. There is little desire to be rich or well-known or have your name anywhere. It is only the desire to love and serve God and other people. The Lord has won over the disciples' heart. This is maturity. For our lives to be marked by unconditional love. And the one who modeled this life of love for us is Jesus of Nazareth. People in the life of love are largely misunderstood. They, they, can, they can appear to the world and or by less mature believers, especially people who are stuck in the cycle of production. They can appear by those people to just be totally wasting their lives. Right? Because there's such a deep intimacy with God. I mean, they'll spend, you know, um, and it, look, I'm not talking about like, hey, go be an ascetic and move to the desert and just pray 26 hours a day, all right? I'm saying, I'm saying that everything, their, mark, their life is marked by a calmness and a, and a settledness in who they are and their, and their identity. And, and they're able to, um, they're, they truly are able to love. Um, they're not self-seeking. They're not, um, they, they have realized the depth of what Jesus said when he said the first and greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That is so rich and so deep. And, and the person who experiences the life of love is somebody who just sits in that, like habitually sits in it, in the love of God. Progress awaits in heaven. Well, I just said it. There you go. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets, all scripture, everything of what God is doing hangs on these two commandments, right? He is not joking. It's not simplistic. Love God and love other people. That is the end goal of spiritual transformation. Yep. This one? Hey, also, this is a good point too. I'm going to print these slides into PDF. And so if you'll give me your email address when you leave, I'll just email this stuff to you. All right? Bam! <clears throat> Done. So here's some questions for your own personal reflection. All right? What stage of growth are you in right now? Okay? It's not, look, there, there's, no right, there's no wrong answer. There's no like, well, I'm supposed to be, and ah, you know. It's okay. Like, be, again, be honest with yourself. What stage of growth are you currently in? All right? Would you say that you're stuck? Or would you say that you're progressing? And then thirdly, are you willing to ask the Spirit to guide you into a deeper discipleship to Jesus? Anybody want to share real quick? I don't want to just gloss past this. If you want to share, you can. Um, I know in a class full of 30 people that might be a little intimidating, but... So I'll share. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say that I vacillate between um, stage four and the wall. <laughs> All right, um, I'm of uh, the season of my life definitely is is uh, very is very introspective. Um, the Lord is uh, um, the 
a lot of the sacred cows that I had in my life, the ones that I wasn't willing to kill, the Lord is killing them for me. All right. And so, um, man, I, I, uh, um, I can, I can definitely, um, I think the whole, when I was in college and then even when I was in seminary, I was definitely in stage three and I was just productive, man. I just went and did it. And, and, uh, and I think through, through some experiences the Lord took me through, took me through the wall. He took me through some other things where I just really, I became very disillusioned with that lifestyle. I became very, you know, I realized the emptiness of just saying like, I'm spinning my wheels really fast. Lord, are you pleased with me? And the Lord's like, hey, come be with me. Come be with me. So for me, it's definitely, um, that's, that's where I am. And I would definitely say that um, I think I'm progressing. Um, and and uh, I would say that in some ways, I'm willing to ask the Spirit to guide me into deeper discipleship to Jesus. In other ways, I'm very hesitant to do that because I know what that entails. <laughs> and most of the time entails me, my, um, my idols in my life, they just need to die. Um, when you follow Jesus, your idols die. And, and that can be a really painful process, especially when you've, been, when you've been coddling an idol for your entire life, right? But Jesus loves us enough to um, not allow us to continue to do that. Okay. The way. You guys know this is a, a discipleship to Jesus. This is what it was first called, right? Did y'all know that? by the early church? Are you walking in the way? Um, it's cool. Here's probably why they called it that, <laughs> right? Because Jesus said, um, actually, this, I, li- I always love to tell the context of his, this, uh, this saying, because Jesus is not just randomly saying this. Um, so one of his disciples is like, hey, um, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and, and when I come, I'll receive you to myself, and, and where I am, you'll be also. Man, it's so rich with relational language. The entire, all of Jesus' messages, relational at its core. And, and, uh, and he says, where I am, that's where you'll be. You'll be with me. And one of his disciples says, Lord, show us the way, and it's enough for us. And, and, and Jesus answers him, and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so we're talking about walking in the way. We're talking about a, an intensely relational, um, uh, just reality that that that's taking root in our lives. Walking in the way. Look, get this, guys. Get it. Get it. Write it down. Walking in the way is not participating in a small group or a program. It is communing with a person. Okay. If you've done a program, if you've done, uh, uh, you, you know, a, a small group, that's great. Don't, don't hear me say that I'm not encouraging you to do that. It's just those things are a means by which you can participate in discipleship to Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus is intensely personal. It is a relationship with a person, someone who rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can walk with him. That is discipleship to Jesus. Look, a guy named Michael Wilkins, who's one of the guys that's teaching my D-Men program as well, my doctoral program, who's written a handful of books back there. Probably, if you're, if you're interested in kind of a biblical theology of discipleship, he's written the book. It's called Following the Master. I wish, they would, I wish he would have told the publisher to print it in the color besides purple, but 
That's what they did. So it's, per, it's the purple book back there. Um, so he says this, faulty conceptions of discipleship focus on what we do rather than on who we are. Man, look, guys, I, man, I mean, we are, and part of this is really convicting me for me for, because for such a long time, I had a check, I literally had a checklist and was like, okay, if you're going to be in my small group, we need to do this and 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 this. And once you do all those things and you're doing them habitually, you're done. Go do that with somebody else. What is that? It's moral formation, right? It's, it's a check this list and you're done. You're, you've graduated. You're a, you're a disciple now, I guess. And that's, just, that's so like off. <laughs> and, and, and thank God that he has shepherded me um, to, to a point where I'm just realizing and, and internalizing a lot of this stuff in my own life. So that when I do shepherd people, I never, I hardly ever ask people like, how is your behavior? The question I ask people is, what is God doing in your heart? That's the question I ask the guys that I'm discipling right now. And really, even, even that language, I'm discipling someone else, is probably not even biblical, right? It's more of um, God is using me in that person's life um, as, a, as a guide and a shepherd as that person is being discipled by Jesus, right? We're not discipling one another. Um, it, I mean, I guess you can hang on to that language. It's, it's, not, it's not bad. It's just, it's off a little bit. So here's some steps forward. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Anybody know what that says? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man what? A man reaps what he sows. Right? And so if you sow, if you continually sow to your flesh, guess what's going to play out in your life? The flesh. Right? If you can, if you consistently sow and allow and agree with the Holy Spirit's work in your life, guess where you're going to sow? Spiritual transformation. That if you allow the Spirit to do his work in your life, you will be transformed. It's what he does. Um, so one of the handouts, rule of faith. All right, I just encourage you guys to check this out. Um, that is a, that's a really... That's a really good way um, to evaluate where you are in the state in your own stage of growth and personal discipleship. It's a really good way for you to kind of map out a way forward for you. Um, and then it's really good because the language in that is very spirit driven. Okay, it's very hey, the Holy Spirit is doing this in your life. Agree with His process. Walk in intimacy with God. What are some ways? Um, what are some of those areas of your life where you're like, man, Lord, I'm holding on to this idol. Okay, good. Be honest about that. Now, what are the steps that you need to take in order for that idol to die? Um, how is God working in your life to, to, uh, to kill that idol? All right? Um, that's the rule of faith. And then revisiting that rule on a quarterly basis. Once every three months or so, I would revisit it and say, Hey, Lord, man, I'm going to be honest. How do, I, how, do, how do we feel like we're doing, that I'm doing here? I mean, do I need to rework this? Is this unrealistic? Do I need to, you know, and keep it simple. Keep it really simple, okay? So even if it's just saying, hey, um, you know, I need to, uh, I, I tend to give in to like um, my own personal desires, whether it's sensual or with food or whatever it is. And so fasting may be a really good discipline for you to practice, all right, on a consistent basis to practice that. Um, not so that you can become someone who fasts, but so that you can develop intimacy with God as that idol in your life gets sacrificed on the altar, right? Um, so check that out. Two books, they are back there. 
is uh, The Life You've Always Wanted by Orberg and Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard are really good um, books to go through. They're both written at a lay level, so you're not going to see a whole lot of you know, um, crazy language in there. Um, those are good to, to help you. And then invest in healthy community. John 13, 34 to 35. Um, man, that, that's kind of the whole like, you know, Watermark always talks about the one another's. Um, that is that is loving other people, sharing your life with them, being involved, um, yeah, doing those things. And then thirdly, engage in a strong mission. And that's Matthew twenty eight eighteen to twenty. All authority is in, in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples um, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And hey, I am with you always relational language right before jesus ascends i am with you always even to the end of the age right here's what that looks like if you guys are like hey how can i how can i be involved in my own personal discipleship to jesus here's how it goes all right there are there is one command in the great commission it is called um make disciples okay it is the only imperative in that verse the other three participles that are tied to that, um, one of them is tied to the verb, and it, so it carries its in, imperatival force. That's go and make disciples. And then the other two participles are what we call, in, in Greek grammar, we call a participle of means. And that is, hey, the, the command is that you make disciples. Here is how you do that. And there's two of them. The first one is, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is the baptized portion of disciples, of what we'd say an active uh, you, you know, seeking to help people grow in their own discipleship to Jesus. And that is one, if they're, not a, if they're not a believer, you need to help usher them into that relationship, right? So um, unless you've never placed your faith in Jesus, which I'm not assuming that everyone in here has, so if, if as I've been talking, you're like, man, I need to do that, then f- come see me afterwards, all right? But if you have, then you're at least in the conversion stage. So what can you do with people? You can help a negative seven become a negative six. And a negative six, initial awareness of the gospel, you can you know, help them understand the fundamentals of the gospels. And you can help them understand the implications. And you can shepherd them to that decision to act. So discipleship for you may, you know, uh, in, in another person's life as you help shepherd them may look like you just, you're moving someone from like militant atheism to agnosticism. And you're discipling that person, Okay. It may look like you moving an agnostic to someone who is, in grasping, is internally grasping the implications of the gospel. It may look like, you know, just like, you know, uh, uh, a guy jump, kind of jumping in the boat and saying, hey, I'm ready to make this decision, and you just happen to cross his way. And it, it, lo- it may look like you're just helping him make a decision to follow Christ, okay? This is the baptism por- portion of Jesus' command to make disciples. It's conversion. It's helping people... Um, uh, come to know Jesus in, in their own personal life, all right? The teach obedience portion of it is this, and I'm, I just created it um, so that it's helpful as we understand in, in the different stages of growth, all right? So you have conversion, and then you have the converted life. Um, man, you've evaluated what you've done. You're incorporated into a community, and then you can move as you grow into conceptual and behavioral growth. You can internally recognize that you have gifts, that you need to exercise those gifts. That's the learning life. Then you can have the external manifestation of the gospel, um, spiritual reproduction. That's the productive life. And then, and then somebody can hit the wall, and then you go into the inner life, and then you can, and then you progress to the outward life, and then you progress to the life of love, right? So, for you, discipleship, look, if you're in stage one, 
then you can disciple people who are everybody that's underneath you. So, you know, basically you can disciple the people who are in your stage of life and also all of those people, right? If you're in stage two, then you can disciple everybody that's underneath you. Everybody that's in the, in the converted life, you can help them. You can shepherd them into the learning life. If you're in the productive life, then you can shepherd people um, from the converted and the learning life into the productive life, right? And you can also, I mean, obviously all the negative people as well. Okay, this is just a really helpful way for us to think about what can I practically do? Well, evaluate yourself, figure out where you are on this, on this chart, and then figure out ways to, to um, evaluate kind of the sphere of influence that God has given you in your own work, in your life, in your family, in your, in your hobbies, in your leisure time. Who has God placed in those areas of your life to where you're like, man, I've evaluated that guy, and he is, he, he understands the gospel, but he has not made a decision to act. So discipleship for that guy looks like me shepherding him to the cross, for him to place his faith in Jesus and, and begin to grow, right? Um, man, at work, you may have a baby Christian who just came to faith and you, you know, for you, for if, if you're in the productive life, then for you, it may be shepherding to say, hey, I need to teach you. I need to cultivate your knowledge about God so that you can begin to walk in intimacy with him. I need to, you know, I, I, I need to help you exercise, ex- externally exercise your gifts so that you can grow. Are you guys tracking with me on this? Okay, so a lot of times people are like, man, I've got to go sign up for a program and be in a discipleship group. No, You are a disciple. You are living a kingdom life. You are participating with what God is doing in the world to redeem the world. He is strategically placing people in your life for you to help them grow in their own personal discipleship to Jesus so that all the earth is permeated with the glory of God. Right? Man, it blows my mind. It blows my mind that God would see fit to invite us to participate with him. Are you serious? What? (laughs) Man, I'm broken. I'm fundamentally broken. And yet he invites me into intimacy with him. And And then it's like, hey, I'm doing something in the world and I want you to be a part of it. Man, walk in that. You know what I'm saying? Walk in that. Discipleship is normative. It's who we are. Hey, if you follow Jesus, guess what he's going to do to you? He's going to make you fish for men. All right? Um, discipleship to Jesus is, is intimately tied to our relationship with him, and our relationship with him is intimately tied to his mission, what he's doing. God is not asking you to just come sit on a rock in front of him. He's, coming, he's, he's inviting you into intimacy to walk with him so that he can use you as a conduit for the power of the Holy Spirit to affect change so that his kingdom literally can come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you get to be a part of that. Man, go sit in that for a while. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'll be thinking about that for the rest of my life. Seriously soaking it in. So man, I, I just, um, there's a cool prayer and then I'll close and then it's five minutes. Man, Lord, seriously, Lord, thank you um, that I'm on time. <clears throat> um, there is, there's a prayer by A.W. Tozer. Um, you guys know Aiden Wilson Tozer. You guys read any of his stuff, The Pursuit of God, um, Knowledge of the Holy, stuff like that. 
Um, that's really good. In fact, I would encourage you, like devotionally, get Brother Lawrence practice the pra- uh, practicing the presence of God or the practice of the presence of God. Um, get A. W. Tozer. Get um, get some of the classics. Some of the one of the classics is back there, um, or it's not a classic. It, it's a book that introduces you to the classics in, in Christian spirituality called uh, Water from a Deep Well. How cool is that title? You know, that's like. That's like a that's like a book that I'm I'm like man I wish I'd have written that you know um, and then that's my ego and the Lord needs to kill that so whatever <laughs> um, you know and then and, and, uh, you know the life of love is Lord thank you that you empowered a man to write that for us um, yeah but uh, there's a cool cool prayer that Tozier wrote or, or yeah they wrote that that I'll pray for us as we close and then I'll be hanging out around afterwards if you want to talk um, get the lectio divina exercise which is a cool personal practice. Get the rule of faith practice. Um, and then please, if you will, I'm not going to look at them. I think Angie, our coordinator, is going to collect your uh, um, uh, course evaluation. So if you haven't done one of those, please go grab back and grab one, and you can tell me how much I need to grow, which I already know. So um, so let me pray for us. Lord, help, help us to search you out as treasure more precious than silver or the merchandise of fine gold. For with you we will live when the stars of the twilight have faded away and the heavens are no more and only you remain. Help us to sit at your feet and know that you're enough to love you and serve you and participate with you in your mission. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.